This week on History's Trainwrecks, we're down to the final four train wrecks of all time. Who will be number one, the biggest train wreck in history? Stay tuned to find out as I go on the Beyond the Big Screen podcast with host Steve Guerra to talk train wrecks and find out which one is the greatest or worst of them all. Now let's go our final four here. We have George McClellan. Oh, yeah. So George McClellan was perceived as a military genius. Before the Civil War, he went to Europe on a consultative basis. He was a captain in the army and he was an engineer and he toured Europe and he learned a a lot of stuff, came back, wrote a book and was perceived as a military expert. He ran railroads. You know, he was an organizer and um, he was put in charge of all the union forces when the civil war started. He was 34 years old and he really put together a, a great army. And he built the army that the union won the war with. He just never took it into battle or he didn't seem like he wanted to. They called the army McClellan's bodyguards because all they did was stay close to him and they never, you know. Um, so here's a guy, he's young and he's at the top of his career. So in the army, there was nobody above him. And so you're thinking, looking at McClellan in 1861, you're like, this guy's got it made. Like, all he's got to do is not screw this up and he'll end up president of the United States, right? But his biggest problem was he didn't think much of anyone who wasn't George McClellan. He didn't care who you were. When he first started as uh, Army of the Potomac commander, Winfield Scott was his superior. And he didn't think much of Winfield Scott. Um, he didn't think much of Abraham Lincoln. And that's okay, but he made no secret of it. So he would make Lincoln come to him come to his headquarters and he would make Lincoln sit in his foyer for two hours. And then at the end of the two hours, he'd send an aide down to say, oh, the general can't see you today. He's too busy. Well, that misrepresents the power structure. This is the president of the United States, love him or hate him. He's your boss. And you at least have to head fake in his direction. You have to at least make it look like the two of you are on board. And McClellan couldn't bring himself to do it. He had contempt for the people who got to decide whether he kept his job much like Douglas MacArthur. And that's not something you can do and get away with. So the reason I like McClellan so much is because his counterpart is Ulysses S. Grant, who 1861, McClellan's on top of the world, right? Smooth sailing, nothing in front of him. Even if he didn't win the war, almost, there'd be nothing in front of him. Ulysses S. Grant couldn't get a commission in the regular army in 1861. And at one point, McClellan did his old trick of Ulysses S. Grant came to see him to get a post as an officer, and McClellan left him sitting in his foyer and never met with him because he thought Grant was a drunk. Three years later, Grant is on top of the world, on his way to the presidency, and McClellan's out. And so when you look at how did that happen, it wasn't so much external forces that sank McClellan, it was McClellan. And that's why he's a train wreck. Yeah, I think that that's really McClellan is a true, pure train wreck because he could have done almost anything, limped along. The South was so far outclassed in materials that almost anybody could have grounded away and won. But it was really, it wasn't the battlefield that destroyed McClellan. It was McClellan's own ego. Right. You could say that McClellan lost it. He lost the game in the tent where he would meet with the president and his other generals. Because if, if, and that's another thing too, is that you have to realize what your strengths really are. 
You have to be honest about that. And then McClellan should have realized, hey, I'm a great organizer. I can put I can put a million men in the field and they will be well-equipped, well-trained, and they will be unstoppable. But I'm not the guy to lead them into battle. That has to be somebody else. If he would have realized that, he could have stayed back at headquarters and turned the army over to guys like Grant and Sherman and said, I built this thing, go hit them over the head with it and still gotten all the credit. There were lots of ways out for McClellan where he could have come out on top and he didn't choose that. And that's why I put the blame for his train wreck squarely at his own feet. He was one. He had his eye on the presidency basically the whole time. I wonder, I mean, this is total speculation here, but I wonder if there was something in his head that if he wins, Lincoln wins, really, Lincoln wins in 1864, no matter what, then that puts him out to 1868 and right. what do you do between 1864 and 1868 if the war's won? Lincoln looks like the a god man for having won it, and then I'm out in the wilderness until right. 1868. That's well, and that you almost might call that Huey Long syndrome, right? Like I know I can be president. That's where it starts, and that's the downfall of anybody who's ever wanted to be president or been president. It's it was Teddy Roosevelt's problem. It was Huey Long's problem. And I think you're right. It might have been part of George McClellan's problem. If I win this war too fast, Lincoln stays in office and I don't like Lincoln. And I feel like I can do a better job because McClellan always thought that about everybody. He ran for president in 1864 and lost because the war was being won by the North and he wasn't involved in it. He had been canned two years before. So your your supposition is very plausible. And you know, anybody who's considered the possibility of being president starts to scheme about the best way to do that. And what they fail to realize is that some of our best presidents have been the guys who never wanted to be president, or at least it wasn't their lifelong ambition. So, you know, it's almost like you're trying too hard. And if you didn't, you might just get the thing you wanted anyway. It seems too that so many of these train wrecks, it's people who are painted into the historical corner and they can't maneuver, so they make really bad decisions. I think of the one of the that always comes up to me is the governor of New York. And it just so happens that they're elected on off years from the presidency. So they always, once they're elected, they have a really long time before they can really get back in the game if they want to look like, oh, I'm not running for the president. I'm going to really be governor. And so Andrew Cuomo is the perfect example. He is a modern day train wreck. But if he had had the chance to really run when he was in his prime, he would have been the president. But it just so happened the way that particular and he's not the only New York governor that that's happened to that if the New York governorship had was just slightly different. And when the elections happened, the person would be golden for president. Right. Well, so think about this. How many New York governors have been president, right? Three that I that I know of, and there may be more. Grover Cleveland, Teddy Roosevelt, and Franklin Roosevelt. So in terms of a stepping stone to the presidency, it actually kind of works, but you have to play it right. So each of the three of them, uh, Grover Cleveland, when he was governor of New York, he established a reputation as a reformer and then stopped. He wasn't trying to be everything. He didn't, you know, there was some scandal about, you know, some child out of wedlock, but it wasn't a big, you know, he didn't make a big deal out of it. And so to your point, you've got a long time to establish a national reputation and not cause trouble. 
and the not causing trouble is the most important part. And so Grover Cleveland didn't cause any trouble. Teddy Roosevelt didn't cause any trouble and FDR didn't cause any trouble. They appeared to the nation to be solid, stable, responsible stewards of the public trust. And it almost became natural. It's like, well, he did so well in New York. Let's send him to the White House. So in Cuomo's case, it was his to lose and he lost it. That's why he's a train wreck. I will tell you, one of the rules on my Facebook page is that I don't talk about anybody who's still alive. Now, historically, you know, from, from a historical study perspective, there's good reason for that. History is not done with you until you're dead. And so the book's not closed while you're still alive. So I don't like to talk anybody about anyone who's alive. And also, the more recent history that you get into, the more sensitive people are about yeah. it, you know? And when you juxtapose Cuomo with the other three governors of New York who made it to the White House, he defines a train wreck. And it's such a great point. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely spot on. And the, the off-year elections is a major contributing factor. That's brilliant. Are you a member of the American History Fanatics fan, uh, Facebook group? No. You should become they, a member. Look that up. It's just American History Fanatics. That'll come up. It's a good place to put your podcast yeah. episodes on. Uh, people will definitely, I'm a, one of the mods. I, I'm friends with the person who started the group, and he has his own podcast too. But um, I would definitely join that group. And that's one of the like invaluable rules of the group is nothing less than, I think it's 25 years Yeah, you can comment on. But I think that... Uh, some there are certain things like it is so clear like andrew cuomo he is a train wreck you know when you when you torpedo your own trajectory you are a train wreck if you just stopped like even mcclellan if when you're on top you have to stop all the things that are that are not your your best qualities you have to dial all that stuff down and and bide your time because yeah. you're already on top right Douglas MacArthur, when you're already on top, you just have to coast to the finish line. That's all you got to do. And they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And that's why they failed. Now we we're moving on to number three, another New Yorker. We have Aaron Burr, right? So Aaron Burr ran for president twice. Um, I think three times, actually 1792, 1796 and 1800 in the 1796 election. He got more votes than George Washington, who wasn't really running. But it's the point I keep making about Aaron Burr is that in 1800, he got more votes than John Adams. He almost got more votes than Thomas Jefferson. He's not a lightweight. And yet today, Aaron Burr's name is mud. And why does that happen? You know. And so Aaron Burr is another, he's almost a classic train wreck because he was right where he needed to be. And it was only a few decisions that he made that really messed it up for him and the way that he was perceived or the way that he let himself be perceived. Alexander Hamilton basically put the nail in his coffin by saying Burr is not a man of principles. Like he doesn't believe in anything long enough for it to stick. He will do whatever is politically expedient. And that makes him an unreliable chief executive, right? That's Hamilton's argument. That's how the election of 1800 went to Jefferson instead of Burr, because Hamilton said, I don't like Jefferson, but I would rather have a man in the White House of the wrong principles than none at all. And so Hamilton framed that choice for the Federalists who gave the election to Jefferson. But when you look at the qualities of Aaron Burr that Alexander Hamilton didn't like, Jefferson had the same. 
Jefferson also was a guy who would tell you one thing to your face and do another thing behind your back. He was a guy whose moral compass kind of spun in lots of different directions. And so he wasn't all that different from Aaron Burr. And it may have just come down to the fact that Hamilton didn't like Burr and the election of 1800 was kind of up to him. And so Aaron Burr could have toned it down. He could have, like, one of the complaints about him was that he actively campaigned to win the presidency in 1800. He actively campaigned for his Senate seat in New York. He actively campaigned to be the governor. And that just wasn't something you did back then. And so people perceived him as, oh, my God, he's such an opportunist because he wants to be senator and he wants to be governor. He wants to be president. Well, so did Thomas Jefferson. And so did John Adams. And so did everybody except George Washington. They were just better at putting the veneer of respectability on their ambition. And Burr was a bit more upfront about it, which from Burr's perspective, that seems more honest, if nothing else, right? I want to be president. Why, why mess around with it? Because by comparison, in 1796, the election year, James Madison would not go to Monticello because while he was there, he might let slip that Jefferson was running for president, which was a fact that Jefferson was trying to conceal from himself. That's a little wacky, right? And so Thomas Jefferson was so good at compartmentalization. He seemed like one of these guys who could lie and pass a lie detector test because he was so able to convince himself. He could say, I never said that. Well, here's a guy who was in the room when you said it. Yeah, but I didn't say it. And he believed it. So was he more or less slimy than Aaron Burr? Who's to say, right? What torpedoed it for Aaron Burr was he, he, he wasn't a dumb guy, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't back off for the sake of getting his, the next step in the stepping stone that he needed. The, the thing to do in 1800 would have been to actively campaign for Jefferson to become president, to be the loyal number two guy and wait your eight years and then take it, you know, be the loyal soldier. And Burr simply couldn't do it. And that's what happened. He also probably shouldn't have shot Hamilton because that doesn't really endear you to anybody. <laughs> but, but, you know, at each point where you could say that was the beginning of the end for Aaron Burr, Burr had a choice and he could have done it very differently and come out on top because he nearly won the presidency a couple of times. It seems like there's a lot of personalities like Burr that it works, it works, it works until it doesn't work. I think the higher you go up, you know, so the, the, the ancient Romans had a, a path to power called the cursus honorum, where you would start out as a tribune and then you would become a consul and then you become a proconsul and you'd, you'd work your way up the ladder. And at least in American politics or the American military, the higher up you go, the more you have to dial down the sharp edges that got you there. Which is a little ironic, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt succeeded, he had to dial back the things that made him who he was in order to, in order to prosper once he got to the top. And you could say that Aaron Burr couldn't do it and George McClellan couldn't do it. They couldn't turn off whatever it was that got them that far so that they could coast to the finish line. And some people were just better at it. Thomas Jefferson was just better at it. And that's what happened. Now let's go back again to ancient history with Marcus Crassus. He's a really, he's, he's one that definitely belongs on the list. Yes. And number two, I'm interested to hear how he makes it so high on your list. Well, because his train wreckiness, if that's a thing, was really kind of blatant. And he, it seemed like he wanted to be a hero to ancient Rome. He wanted to be the general who won the war. 
he wanted to be the benevolent rich man who who saved the poor from starvation. Like he wanted to be all of these things, but he couldn't pull it off and it burned him. It just burned him up. Uh, uh, you know, his nemesis is Pompey the Great. So Marcus Crassus and Pompey the Great came up at a time when uh, Spartacus was having his revolt. And the Senate, the Roman Senate, those pack of cowards, freaked out and said, oh my God, there's a gigantic slave army in Italy. There's a general, a rogue general in, in Spain who's taken over the province. And King Mithridates over in Asia Minor is starting to invade our territory and we're just losing it. And so anybody who can fix this can be dictator. Like you can have the keys to the city. And Marcus Crassus said, oh boy, that's going to be me because I can buy me an army and I'll just wipe these guys out. And he kind of did, but Pompey the Great came in at the last minute and took all the credit. What was the difference? Pompey was a great self-promoter. Marcus Crassus was a lot like we said about Herbert Hoover and William Howard Taft. He was a doer, but he wasn't great at letting people see him do things. And he wasn't good at the victory lap. That's almost necessary in these kinds of societies. You have to be seen as successful. You can't just point to all your list of achievements that nobody saw but still got done. So Crassus always failed in that regard, but he also was an unlikable fellow too. I mean, he was never going to be a popular beloved hero because when he was Rome's fire chief and your house was on fire, he wouldn't put it out until you sold it to him. And while it's on fire, he's going to the two next door neighbors on either side saying, you know, that guy's house is on fire and yours is probably next and I'm the fire chief. So what say you sell me your property? You don't have a choice, right? It's a fire sale. And so he was a bit of a jerk and that's how he got rich. And so no matter what he did after that, everybody in Rome kind of had his number. They knew he was a bit of a slimeball. He was never going to be a Pompey the Great because his reputation, his virtue, which is very important to the Romans, was tarnished by the fact that he made all this money badly, shall we say. Now, he didn't make his money any worse than, say, Octavian, the future emperor Augustus did. But in, in a society where virtue is, a, is a, a, a positive trait, like in the Revolutionary War generation in America, you could be ambitious. You just couldn't tell anybody you were ambitious. And in ancient Rome, you could want glory, but you had to be a good man. And the consensus on Marcus Crassus was, you're not a good guy. And so he was useful because he was rich. He was useful because he had legions and, and he had clients who would work for him. He had, he had support, but he was never going to be a hero like Julius Caesar or like Pompey the Great. He was always going to be the third wheel. So in a lot of ways, he's different from the other ones, uh, a lot of the other train wrecks in that it's really his train rectum was built into his core. And, and you could say that one thing is important. If you have an ambition, if you have a, a lifelong ambition to be president or to be a general or to be a hero, you have to fixate on that early <laughs> and you have to kind of craft your life in that direction. Like uh, when FDR cheated on Eleanor in 1918, his mother told him, you really should get divorced because you cheated on your wife. But if you do, you'll never be president of the United States. And FDR said, oh, well, can't have that. So Crassus didn't fix on his goal early enough to clean up his act long enough to make it work. Now, times are different now. I mean, you know, Americans love comebacks and you can be, you can be a bad guy in your 20s, but if you sincerely reform, then America always takes you back, um, which is what Kissinger told Nixon. 
face up to what you've done, apologize, be sorry for it, and America will forgive you. And you can be perceived again as a virtuous man. And Nixon wouldn't do it. And Crassus wouldn't do it either. Yeah. And Crassus, I think that it's very difficult to find a historical analogy to Crassus where a gazillionaire can just buy himself an army and make himself legitimate and rocket himself up into that position. And in quite that same way, there's something very unique about Crassus historically. Right. But he's not, he, he wouldn't be the first rich guy who could buy his way into power. It's like um, the Emperor Augustus, who I always compare Crassus to, because they had the same amount of money. I mean, at, at the time, Augustus was emperor, which he never called himself that. But his personal patrimony was Egypt. He was a wealthy, wealthy guy. He was way richer than Crassus. But nobody knew it because he didn't make a big deal out of it. You know, he would personally finance things, but it would be quietly done, you know, and and he lived in a small house on the Palatine Hill. And when you look at, and, and he would put his wife in the doorway to, to weave, uh, you know, at her loom so that he's saying to the way hey, we're just folks. Right. But at the time he was doing that, Augustus was 10 times richer than Crassus and bought armies and, and had them win battles for him, just like Crassus wanted to do. But it was a factor of controlling the narrative that Augustus could do, Crassus could not. FDR could do it, Huey Long couldn't. Every time you see these train wrecks and their counterparts, there's always somebody who can do it, like Thomas Jefferson could do it and Aaron Burr could not. And you could argue that the person who succeeded at that was the more dishonest person, right? Burr, you you got what you saw, right? Same thing with Crassus. Hey, I'm a rich guy and I got my money the hard way, but you know, I want to be the hero of Rome. And I'm making no secret about it. I'm not going to, I don't have a PR guy. I'm, I'm just me. And, you know, at a certain point, if you want to be a revered figure, you have to gloss over some of your more unsavory aspects. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historystrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. Now we're, we're, we've worked our way up to number one, just to review for people. At number 10, we had Richard Nixon. Number nine, Theodore Roosevelt. Number eight, Cato the Younger. Number seven, Philip II of Spain. Number six, Huey Long. Number five, Herbert Hoover. Number four, George McClellan. Number three, Aaron Burr. Number two, Marcus Crassus. Now, I think a lot of people out there are probably wondering what their number one is, and we're really wondering what your number one is, because that's a healthy list right there. Um, Maybe before we go into number one, who are maybe some of your honorable mentions that don't quite make the list, but they still have some train wrecks to them? So, um, and this will probably surprise you, but some of my honorable mentions are John D. Rockefeller, John Adams. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of who else. Um, those are the two that kind of stand out as you wouldn't normally expect them to be train wrecks, but here we are. Um, uh, Samuel Adams. Um, I actually... I do have a list. Um, let me just let me just real quickly look at it uh, because there are some interesting names on here. When I first started uh, this, and I first came up with my 
list of people. Um, there are some surprising names on here. So honorable mentions, um, General Mark Clark, World War II general, uh, lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. Charles Lee of Revolutionary War fame, who they always, George Washington's second in command, um, had much more military experience, actual combat experience than George Washington, was perceived to be a better general. Um, he could have taken the top spot if he hadn't been such a train wreck. Um, Julius Caesar is on the list because Julius Caesar really didn't have to get assassinated. Much like Huey Long, he pushed his opponents to where they had no choice except to kill him. And he could have gone a different direction. And we know that because his successor, Augustus Octavian, did. Augustus ended up with all of Julius Caesar's money and power, but went a different direction and died in his sleep. So um, Sam Adams, Constantine the Great. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Well, you know, when you throw your when you throw your mom into a pit to starve to death, or your ex-wife, you throw your ex-wife into a pit to starve to death, uh, and you have your firstborn son assassinated, you're not a good guy. You can bring Christendom to the rest of the Western world, but at some point, you're still a bit of a train wreck. And the way he left the empire after his death almost guaranteed that there would be strife and division, and it didn't have to be that way. So um, let's see. Um, yeah, that's that, that. Those are my uh, those are my honorable mentions. I have always one particular person has always stuck out to me, and I never had I would never had that terminology of train wreck, but Diocletian is has a little bit of a train wreck to him. I wonder, what do you think about someone like Horatio Gates? Oh, yeah. Oh, see, now now you're just giving me material <laughs> because I'm writing these down going, you know, that's a good point right there. So Diocletian, he's one of my favorites because he was the first emperor to try and retire. And when they tried to bring him back after the empire kind of went to pieces, he's like, you know, if you could see the cabbages that I'm growing on my land, you wouldn't want me to be emperor because being a cabbage farmer is way better. Um, but Diocletian was another one of those, a great organizer, a great administrator, but he couldn't see too far out into the future. Like he couldn't, he did, he expected that everybody was like him. And he had a co-emperor, Maximian, who is a train wreck. And he said, well, after 20 years, I'm going to step down as emperor. And so are you. As if everybody could just give that up because he thought he, I can, so why can't you? And our successors, who we've groomed to come over and take over the empire, well, they're going to be good, self-effacing guys who are just going to do the right thing. And that was naive. And that was Diocletian's ultimate uh, downfall. Um, who was the other one that you said? Diocletian? Horatio Gates. Gates. Oh, yes. Now, um, are you familiar with the Conway plot? I think it was the Conway Cabal. Somewhat. It's uh, So after Saratoga, you know, Horatio Gates won this massive victory kind of because the other guy fell. Um, uh, gentleman Johnny Burgoyne didn't show up to fight. But Horatio Gates at the time was perceived, and this happens anytime the war is going badly. It happened in the Civil War too. The war is going badly. Oh my God, there's a guy who won a battle. Let's make him the general, right? And so he was in a position to give George Washington a run for his money. And he let himself get sucked into this conspiracy of sorts where, and it wasn't a real, you know, nobody was going to die. But a bunch of generals like Charles Lee and others and, and some members of the Continental Congress were kind of doing this whisper campaign like, well, you know, George isn't really winning anything. And this guy did. And so, you know, maybe we should have somebody else. And it never came to anything because George Washington was a master of, well, if you don't want me, then I'll quit. 
And everybody said, oh my God, no, <laughs> you know, like he shamed them into it. But he also had John Adams working for him in the Continental Congress is like, no, we need Washington because he's Washington. So what Horatio Gates should have done, and this is where we cut every train wreck, we always like, here's what you should have done different, Horatio, throw your support behind Washington. Just be the good number two, because you can't be number one, which is also advice you could give to Aaron Burr. Be the best number two that you can until your time comes. And Horatio Gates couldn't wait, or the people around him couldn't wait. And I told you John Adams is on that list too. Same advice I'd give John Adams. Just be a good number two, because all you got to do is wait and it's all yours. And he, he struggled with it, shall we say. So Horatio Gates, um, it, well, there he is on my list. He's on my list now. <laughs> but when I do my Horatio Gates episode, you will get full credit because that's a, that is an inspired choice. Okay, we made it to number one. Who is your top historical train wreck of all time? That would be General Douglas MacArthur. Now that's a surprising one. I think that I think in a lot of ways either people would say that oh well he's not a train wreck or they just wouldn't think of him in train wreck in a train wreck sort of framework. So let's put Douglas MacArthur into his into his train wreck framework. Okay. So the the one of the defining characteristics of a train wreck is success. And usually it's early success. Early consistent success. And there's no denying that Douglas MacArthur had it almost from birth because his father, Arthur MacArthur, was also a renowned army officer. So they were keeping it in the family. So he started young. He served with distinction um, uh, almost from the beginning of his military career, um, served with distinction in World War I. And let's remember that a lot of the things you say that about Douglas MacArthur that are good are true. He was brave in combat. He was beloved by his men. Um, but the best phrase that I've ever heard about Douglas MacArthur was a diplomat. Uh, I think Douglas MacArthur's father was uh, posted to the Philippines or something. And uh, one of the American representatives there said, Arthur MacArthur is the most egotistical man I have ever met until I met the son. <laughs> and so Douglas MacArthur's train wreck was ego, which an argument you could make about George McClellan too. Um, he did things that made you think that he was all about himself. So in World War I, he pushed, he got, I think he got six medals of honor in World War I, and he pushed for them. Like he lobbied to get medals of honor. At the end of his career, he lobbied to become a five-star general or general of the armies, which is another fascinating story. Um, but he also took George Washington's Legion of Merit, which was a word that Washington gave out to his soldiers in the revolution and renamed it the Purple Heart and designated it for uh, veteran, you know, soldiers been wounded in combat. And he made sure that he got the first one. And so these are the kinds of things when you look at that, you're like, hold on. Ultimately, Douglas MacArthur is working for Douglas MacArthur. He doesn't really have a higher principle than that. And so when World War II broke out now, and, and remember up until World War II, he was army chief of staff. I mean, his career was great. Um, he, he did a lot of good things in, in, in service. And so we can't ignore that. But to me, that's the precursor for a train wreck. You are not a screw up from day one. You are successful from day one. And anybody who looked at your resume said, oh, that guy is going to be the commanding general of the armies. 
He's going to be joint chief of staff. He's going to be president and he's going to be a hero that we remember forever. And then he's not. And that's what makes him a train wreck. So 1941, Douglas MacArthur essentially gets drafted back into service by FDR. FDR makes him a lieutenant general, which at the time, that's about as high ranking as you can get. And he put him in command of all the forces in the Far East. So facing Japan. In 1941, the consensus in the War Department was that the main American engagement in the Second World War was going to be in the Far East. They really didn't think America was going to go to Europe as big as we did. So giving MacArthur command of the American forces in the Far East means he's running the war. And so he's the highest ranking general in the army, just about. He is in command of the forces that everybody thinks are going to be the point of the spear in this this great war, but not so much. Because when the focus of the war shifted to Europe, they didn't pick MacArthur to go command it. And that's a huge oversight. I mean, at the time, just imagine like the high, the, the theater of the main theater of war has changed. We're, we're now Western Europe focused. You didn't take your top general and just put him in charge. And who is this Eisenhower fella anyway? Right. And so why didn't they make that decision? Well, here's why. There were two guys who got to make that decision. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and George C. Marshall, who was Army Chief of Staff at the time. And they had MacArthur's number. And they believed that MacArthur wasn't about the mission. He wasn't about the war. He wasn't about the country. He was about MacArthur, top to bottom. And the role of commanding general of American forces in World War II was 50% diplomat and 50% military man. And MacArthur couldn't. He wasn't the guy. And, And FDR and George C. Marshall knew it. He wasn't even ever considered. And, you know, if you're Douglas MacArthur, you're sitting here going, hey, what happened, fellas? I mean, I am the, I'm not only the logical choice, but I feel like I'm the default. I feel like I'm already there and all you got to do is move my headquarters. So what's going on, right? And MacArthur's reaction to that was just to make him worse. (laughs) Like all the qualities that they said, here's why we don't like you, MacArthur. He's like, oh, really? Well, let me dial that up to 11. And at the end of his career, when he was in command of uh, the Korean War, essentially, um, he, well, you might say that he pulled a George McClellan on Harry Truman. And he said, I know better than this shoe salesman from Missouri. And I'm not going to do what he says. Because Truman said, I don't want you talking to, I don't want you doing diplomacy. I don't want you talking to other heads of state like you're a head of state because it's not your job. I don't want you talking to the press because we, we craft the message, not you. And MacArthur said, I'm going to do it anyway. And he knew that he basically was just insubordinate. He knew it. He figured that because he was Douglas MacArthur, he would get away with it. And it made him one of many people in American history who underestimated Harry Truman. And the funny thing, at the time, Harry's mother-in-law told Bess, Harry's wife, well, he can't fire Douglas MacArthur. He was just a captain. And Bess had to tell her mother, and not for the first time, mom, you know, Harry's president of the United States, right? <laughs> and so, but, but the, the reason I tell that story is because Douglas MacArthur didn't seem to realize that either. And that was his downfall. And so if you're a commanding general, you kind of got to factor the president into your planning. And if you don't, it's not going to go well for you. I wonder what someone like MacArthur, what would have ever been a happy ending for him? I, I just don't, I, I don't see him as a president. I, I, the the career that he had of success after success after success in Sean, I mean, the, it, 
even in Chan, it's like so improbable that somebody that far into their career is just going to come back out and he swings and hits another home run. It just, he seems like one of those characters that comes along that it's, it's just impossible to really put your finger on him. Right. Well, and this is what's, this is what makes them fascinating because you can't write them off because, you know, when it came to Inchon, everybody's saying, oh, that's never going to work, Douglas. And he said, you know what? We're going to do it and we're going to win. And one thing about American, we love optimists, right? And the people that we love more than optimists are optimists who are proven right. When America had to build up their forces at the beginning of the World War, everybody said to FDR, there's no way that we can, that America can produce tanks and jeeps and planes at the numbers that you're calling for. It is impossible. And FDR said, the American people can do anything and they're going to do this. And he was right and everybody else was wrong. And so Douglas MacArthur had those same qualities and he could deliver. And the reason why he's a train wreck by my definition is because he wasn't a screw up. He, he got things done like Herbert Hoover. He got things done. And all it meant was whatever prize it was he wanted was his for the taking until he threw it away. So in MacArthur's trajectory, I don't think he ever wanted to be president. I don't think he would have made a good one. I think he kind of knew it. I think what he wanted was general of the armies. So uh, in, in military American military history, John J. Pershing was general of the armies, plural which I think is the equivalent of a six-star general, right? And it came with a lot of perks. And so when John Pershing was general of the armies, he made more money than the president. Like he was higher paid than the president. He had privileges everywhere in the country. I think MacArthur wanted that because that seemed like the kind of thing that was just right up MacArthur's alley, where everywhere he went, you know, the skies cleared and, and uh, rays of light shined down, more so than the president at the time because he didn't have to do any actual work. He didn't have to negotiate with Congress. He didn't have to do anything. All he had to do was be Douglas MacArthur outside and everything was going to go his way. So he pushed for that job. He pushed to be named general of the armies. And my favorite story, well, one of my very favorite stories. In 1976, on July 4th, Congress retroactively promoted George Washington to the rank of general of the armies. Retroactive to 1799, right? What it means is that in all of American history and in all of American history to come, there will be no American officer who will ever outrank George Washington. And that's just nice. (laughs) That's just one of those things where you go, you know what? That fits. That's what you should do for a George Washington. But it's not something you should do for a Douglas MacArthur. And the difference, the only difference that really matters to me is that MacArthur wanted it and pushed for it. And George Washington, had he been alive, would have turned it down. And that might just be the difference between a train wreck and not. Now, to wrap up this, what do you think, and all of these people, these these 10 people and some of the other ones that we've talked about, in so many ways, they're so different, but in, and in all of your research of these train wrecks, do you see a couple of traits that just keep coming through? Yes. First of all, talent. They are all talented. They all seem to accomplish things that just us mere mortals couldn't. They get things done. They are accomplished people. There's no denying what they're good at, and they're really good at what they do. So that, to me, that's the baseline of being a train wreck, is you have to be really good at what you do. You have to deliver on what you promise. 
And these guys, every single one of them delivered them on that. Um, they have to be on a trajectory where you can see that whatever it is that they want, whatever they consider to be the ultimate prize in life, whether it's an office like president of the United States, whether it's general of the armies, whether it's um, you know the president of Yale, um, or even um, a revered place in history, which sounds intangible, but in the Revolutionary War generation, that's what they wanted. They wanted us to be still saying their names a thousand years later. And so that, you know, as an amb- it was a tangible ambition for them. So of all these train wrecks that we're talking about, they all wanted something like that. They wanted the top job in their career. They wanted the top office in the land, and they wanted to be remembered in posterity. And so that's the setup because the next, the next category in train wrecks is there's nothing in their way. They are full steam ahead. They are heading straight for whatever it is that they say they want is actually within their grasp. It's not like you say, oh, well, Aaron Burr never would have been president. Sure he would have. He missed it by one vote. Let's not kid ourselves, right? Douglas MacArthur could have been general of the armies. He was well on his way. Um, George McClellan certainly could have ended up as president. We, we said that not too long ago, right? So the other criteria is that whatever it is that they want, it's attainable. And almost, you might say, inevitable. And then finally, at the last minute, something goes wrong. And more often than not, they did it to themselves. Based on a true story, you've seen that before, usually in the trailer for a new historical movie about a war, a conquest, a daring mission, a dangerous journey, or the life of a towering figure in history. But how true is it? The Beyond the Big Screen podcast takes you behind the scenes of movies based on historical events to show you how close the filmmakers came to the truth or how far they veered from it. Check out Beyond the Big Screen podcast at your favorite podcast platform. Well, now we know who the number one train wreck of all time is. This is a great subject for debate and discovery, so I'd love to hear your input on the list. If you think I got it right, or if you think I'm wildly off base, time for you to weigh in. Please leave a comment on the History's Trainwrecks Facebook page, or join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. You can Twitter to add History's Train, and Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. I'm looking forward to your thoughts. Thanks again to Steve Guerra of A to Z History and the Beyond the Big Screen podcast for having me on the show. As you may have been able to tell during the 10 seconds I wasn't talking, Steve is extremely knowledgeable and insightful when it comes to history. I encourage all of you to find Steve and follow him on his Facebook groups like American History Fanatics and his Twitter feed and podcasts. On our next episode, we get back to poor old Huey Long and his ongoing shenanigans. Stay tuned for The Most Dangerous Man in America, Part 5.